Well, good morning. Welcome to Lenore Presbyterian Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, and it's quite literally good to be in here because I was melting outside. When you have to bring a change of clothes uh, Sunday morning when you're preaching, you know, it's, you know you're in interesting times. So good morning. Welcome to Lenore Presbyterian Church. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we know that the Christian life is full of dichotomies. And as a church, we experienced one of those this past weekend, the uh, sorrow and mourning that comes with the death of loved ones, specifically Wes Collins and Jason Rains, but also, also the celebration that comes with knowing that they are face to face with their King and Maker, Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray today that as we enter into your word this morning, that it would guide us, that it would shape us, that it would lead us. And Father, I pray that in all of that, the name of Jesus Christ would be celebrated, would be enjoyed, and would be magnified in this place. We love you, we pray this all in his name, Christ our soon coming King, amen. Now welcome Alec Jenkins.
That was beautiful, man. Well done. Well done. Let's pray once more. And Father, one aspect of the beauty of knowing you and of being known by you is that you hear us. You know us and you know what harms us. You know what brings us joy. And Father, I pray that this morning as we bring our requests before you, we would bring, we bring them confidently. We would do so with confidence, knowing that you hear, that you respond, that you're a God who listens. So Father, hear us, give ear to us as we bring these names before you. Darcy and Hogan. So, Father, as we approach your word in all of its complexities and all of its difficult passages, we are reminded of the simple words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we will pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And in our pursuit of understanding God's word, he gives us his spirit to guide us and to uh, illuminate its words to us. Last Sunday, we entered into Psalm 79, a song of lament, of mourning, loss, and hardship. And we saw the slow, painful movement from questioning and accusing God to celebrating and enjoying God. Verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 79 looked far different from verse 13. But that process was necessary for the psalmist to come to a true understanding of how God deals ever so patiently with his people. We remember that he rejoices, the psalmist rejoices in God as the good shepherd who leads and guides and disciplines his people. And just as this was true for God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, it's true for us today. We lament in times of hardship, in times of loss. We're often disoriented by the cares and troubles of the world. And not to mention the internal conflicts and sins that we wake up to and fight every day. And God is patient. He's kind. He gives us space and room to question, and he doesn't leave us to ourselves to figure it out. He's present in it all. And by his grace, just as we saw in Psalm 79, 
He directs his children back to him. He leads us beside still waters amidst the stormy seas of life. That even when the world around us, our Jerusalem, is, in, is on fire, Christ is here. That with the pandemic still present, unemployed still the job title, sickness still the diagnosis, there is a calm that comes in being known by God. But it's not simple, right? It's messy, as we saw. It does not come without stumbling and falling. It took the psalmist, and it takes us, a while to see that. It's not a one and done, learn it once and I got it kind of deal, but a continual remembrance, a returning to the scriptures to see the story of who God is and how he acts towards his people. So the psalmist continues into Psalm 80 and asks God repeatedly to restore them. We see three unique pictures of who God is for his people when we come to our end and cry out, restore us. And I pray that that's not only our cry in tough times, but maybe even more, maybe even better, maybe even more specifically in times when we have a handle on our households, in times when our jobs are secure, when the bank account is full, may our cry be, restore us, O God. These three pictures that the psalmist reveals portray God as the good shepherd king who is both rugged and royal, who walks with us in our hardship and is enthroned and sovereign over us as king of his world, as the good father who celebrates his children, who isn't afraid to discipline when discipline is needed. And finally, as the good gardener who prunes away and trims depleting, exhausting, toxic branches in order for us, his people, to grow vibrant and strong. Let's see our first description this morning in verses 1 through 3. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God is the good shepherd king. He's the one who leads his flock and the brilliant shining one upon the cherubim. Now the latter part is in reference to the Ark of the Covenant. There'll be a picture of that on the screen this morning. The Ark was a wooden chest overlaid with pure gold and it contained the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And sitting atop the Ark were two gold figures These were angelic-looking figures that 
had wings covering their faces in reverence of God. Those were the cherubim. And the intricacies that went into the ark and the precise measurements and the overall beauty was meant to represent God's holiness, his set-apartness. And with God being set apart, there came rules for handling the ark. One of those being very, very important to remember. Do not touch it or you'll die. So there were golden poles that the people of Israel would carry to the promised land. And as they moved to inherit the land that God had promised to them, the ark would be a constant reminder that God was with them, that he won victories for them. A reminder that mighty, exalted Yahweh was God with them. Emmanuel. The psalmist is therefore conveying two distinct but consistent realities. That as the good shepherd king, God is intimately involved and eternally exalted all at once. Rugged and royal all at once. When Jesus boldly proclaims in John 10 that I am the good shepherd, he is saying both of these things. That the great I am of the Old Testament, that's me. The exalted, set-apart one that you've read about and heard about, that's me. The good shepherd king has taken on flesh and dwelt among you. From touch the golden box and die to eat my flesh, drink my blood, and live. John 6. Doesn't seem like a a people to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And yet this is what Jesus said in John 6 to separate those who were just following him because of what they saw and were impressed by walking on water, feeding 5,000 with very little from those who would abandon their lives to devote it to a better king and his kingdom. Those who saw past the miraculous works to the essence, the purity of his message. That he wasn't just someone who came to feed stomachs, but to satisfy souls. And to do that, he says, you must eat of me. You must celebrate me. The good shepherd king who supplies all we need in him is here. He is our good shepherd. In Jesus, we shall not be in want. The good shepherd king, the bread of life, God with us. And this is what the psalmist is looking to and trusting within uncertain times. Maybe this morning and in your life, you struggle with the reality that Christ is intimately involved like a good shepherd, that he actually cares about the details of your life. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and maybe you know he's involved, maybe you know that he cares, but you struggle to revere him as creator, as ruler over everything. That he's maybe more of a friend and a buddy and not a king to be followed and obeyed. God desires, though, for him to be for us 
who he truly is, the good shepherd king. Like the psalmist, as the children of God, we ask God to give ear to our requests. That's what we just prayed. To restore in our lives a right understanding of his shepherding, kingly heart. So the psalmist presses on. And in verses 4 through 7, we're rattled by the disorientation of the psalmist, but find hope once more in God's nature and character. Read Psalm 80, 4 through 7. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God's people, the church of Christ, are his children. And he is our good father. But so often we get disoriented and forget who we truly are. And in forgetting who we truly are, we forget who we truly belong to. That God will care for us as a perfect father. Many of us can't even fathom that. Let's read Matthew 7, 9 through 11. It'll be on the screen. Jesus Christ says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? The disobedience of God's people to be who they truly were, a gift to the nations. This this disobedience led them into the disciplinary work of God, which in the moment is disorienting. Tears for food? I thought you were a good father. The look on a child's face when you have to discipline them, you can see what in the world is going on. I thought you were here to care for me, all the while not seeing that in our discipline is love. You see, verses 4 through 7 are a reversal of how things should be, and we can often relate. Instead of feasting on God and enjoying him as the greatest gift and the giver of all good things, they rebelled and looked to themselves. Instead of being the envy of their neighbors— not because of their good yards or nice shrubs, but by reflecting God's grace and joy to them. Instead of that, they were a mockery. In verse 7, they again come to the end of themselves and look to the only one who can do something about it, like the prodigal son who came to his senses and realized that he belonged in a mansion even though he was eating out of a pig trough. That he had a father who was 
waiting to rejoice over him. And he does rejoice over his children. Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Kingly. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Shepherd. He will exalt over you with loud singing like a father. And this is not out of strict obligation to do so. Well, you know, he's God, so he's got to forgive me. He's got to love me. No, no, no. Rejoicing out of selfless grace that then drives the people of God to reflect that, to obey that, to follow him. Strict obligation says, because of my title or role, I have to. Selfless grace says, out of the overflow of my love, I rejoice to. I don't know about you, but I'm often prone to thinking about God as a mechanical, transactional robot. That the one who plugs in the formula and then spits out just the right amount of grace to foot the bill. But no, he rejoices to supply all that we need in our king. He's the shepherd, the good shepherd king, the good father. And then the psalmist continues. Psalm 88 through 19. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But, but, let your hand be on the man of your, of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And he finishes the same way he finished every other section. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He is the good gardener. Called to be shade and refuge to the surrounding nations, but they set this aside. They set aside God's command to care for those who are far different from them, those poor, those despised, and instead selfishly cared for their own wants and needs. God wants to be a refuge 
to the entire world, church. And he wants to do that through us. But instead, he often has to take out his hedge clippers and slowly but surely and painfully clip away, prune away everything that's keeping the vine from being all that it's supposed to be. Israel, as we see, was its own worst enemy. Just as we are our own worst enemy. I'm my own, my own worst enemy. I'm my biggest critic. I assume you as well are your biggest critic. Yet most of the time, we think the chief enemy is across the aisle. Those of a different political party or ethnicity or religious belief or those who believe schools should be open or those who believe schools should be closed, when in reality, you're your own worst enemy. We are far too quick to call out what's wrong in others instead of first being who we've been set apart to be. Are you being shade? Are you being a refuge? And not to those who are easy to be shade to, There was a hard-headed prophet in the Old Testament who instead of engaging a broken lost world, a broken lost city, with hope and grace, found it far easier to grumble about them. And I'm sure if he had Facebook, Jonah would type up a quick post and talk about how ugly and unworthy the city was. All the while, all the while, forgetting the essence of the gospel of grace, the good news that Christ is king, that he is the son of God who rejoices in forgiving and sanctifying his people. May we ask God, church, to continually prune away everything that does not glorify him, and it will be painful we know that it's painful, but it is always, always, always for our good and our joy. Let's pray together. Father God, called to be shade, we so often are a bright burning light. that looks no different from the world we are called to engage and called to speak life into. So this morning, we not only pray that you would be exalted in our worship, that you would be exalted in your word, but that you would be exalted in the way we interact, the way we pray, the way we converse with those who are far different from us. This is what the nation of Israel was called to do. This is what your church is called to do. And this is how your name will spread. How your glory will be exalted. And we pray that you would do that in our lives. 
We love you. Oftentimes it doesn't show, but we love you and we desire to follow you. Grow our love for you this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So now as you leave, this is important, but this is 30, 45 minutes. Go out into the world. Be a refuge. Be shade. Be men, women, children who celebrate the grace and glory of Christ our King. Amen. Go in peace.